Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. It's good to be back after reaching someone last week. So I have a revision sticker on the back of my car. And if you don't have one, we got more on the way. You should definitely pick one up next week. But a couple weeks ago, I was running late to a meeting because I had another meeting that ran long. And after weaving in and out of traffic on 235, I came to the conclusion that I either need to get rid of that sticker or be a better driver. (laughs) So only two options. I don't want people associating my bad driving with my faith. And I have a lot of room for growth and holiness in that particular arena. And I'm willing to bet I'm not the only person in this room who sometimes speeds and often gets frustrated with other people. Like I just find it difficult to extend the grace of Jesus to terrible drivers on the road. A couple years ago, I was driving the church truck and trailer up Merle Hay Road, and there was a car at an intersection that was thinking about turning right on red. You could tell it was doing kind of the stop, start thing. And as I got closer, I realized it was a little old lady, and I was almost to the intersection, like way, way too late to make that decision. She decided to go for it. And she didn't exactly floor it, so I had to slam on the brakes with a 10,000-pound trailer behind me, which is tough to slow down, let alone stop, and everything screeched, and I came within inches of hitting her, but I didn't. And then she moved over into the other lane and waved at me as I went by, and what I wanted to do back was not wave. (laughs) I was driving a big old trailer that said church on the side. To be fair, it says New Hope Church, Cambridge, Minnesota, because we couldn't peel the stickers off, so I don't think she could have traced it back to revision. But then I would have felt like I had to call my buddy Bill, who gave us the trailer, and be like, hey, if you get a call from an angry old lady, that's me, man. That's me. And it would have been complicated, so I just, I just waved. And I remember that story this week because I saw a Twitter thread about this little old lady who had a honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker on her car. And this guy said that he was driving along, and he saw it, and he's like, I love Jesus, I'll honk. And this little lady rolled down her window, stuck out her arm, and gestured to him in a manner that he was not expecting when he honked because he loved Jesus. And I was thinking about it, I thought, maybe she's just a raging atheist. She's trying to trap people so she can let them know what she thinks of Christians. Like, hey, Fred, I got another one. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I don't know, that's not a thing that we can know, but I think it's significantly more likely that at some point in her life she was at a store and she saw it and she thought, oh, I love Jesus, how fun would it be to meet other Christians on the road? And she stuck it on her car. But that morning, maybe she accidentally drank decaf, maybe her Bill Gaither tape wasn't working right in her tape deck. That's a great joke for the 10 people who understood it. Yeah, grandma's just like mine. But like whatever happened, when this dude honked, she did not remember she had that bumper sticker. She just thought, he's making me very uncomfortable, and I'm going to communicate to him precisely how much I appreciate that discomfort. And it's easy to like laugh at this little old lady or to judge her, like just sinner. But I think we got to extend her a little bit of grace because I'm not sure who she is and how she's living is that different than any of the rest of us on a day-to-day basis. And here's what I mean by that. If you're a Christian, and let me press pause and unpack that real quick. A Christian is not somebody who prayed, dear God, please don't let me go to hell one time. That's just somebody who doesn't want to go to hell. It's not quite the same thing. And a Christian isn't somebody who got confirmed back in the day but didn't meet Jesus along the way. 
Like if that's you, the only thing you've confirmed is that you know a lot about a guy you don't actually know. And a Christian isn't somebody who got sprinkled with water by a priest while they wore a white dress. That might be part of your story. It might be even a meaningful part of your faith journey. But the Bible makes it clear that a Christian is somebody who recognizes and responds to the truth of the gospel message. That God created this perfect world, but we chose to reject him and go our own way. And we broke the whole thing. But in his love, God refused to abandon us in our shattered space. Instead, he sent his son in who lived a perfect life and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so we could be forgiven and set free. And then he unlocked death from the inside so that we could live forever in relationship with him and one another. A Christian is somebody who recognizes that and responds by saying, okay, Jesus, I give you my life for all my life. I want to follow you. That's a Christian. And with that in mind, becoming a Christian means more or less coming to this point where you say, God, I'm yours. I believe in you and I belong to you. What you say to start doing, I'm going to start doing. What you say to stop doing, I'm going to stop doing. I'm all in. But what happens, at least if you guys are anything like me, is we adopt that mindset. We embrace that label, Christian, follower of Jesus. We slap the bumper sticker on the back of our car, the honk of you love Jesus one or the revision one, whatever it looks like, and we are in. Right up to the point where God asks us to do something uncomfortable. We're in, right, until Jesus asks us to do something we don't feel like doing. When following God isn't the path of least resistance anymore. When God calls us toward difficult things, you know what we do most of the time? Pretend we didn't hear him. We're like, ah, I don't know, that tug at the heart couldn't possibly be real. That, that couldn't be God talking to me. That's just the weird leftovers I ate last night. It's not, it's not I, can't, I can't do it. God could never call me to that. And then the Holy Spirit pulls up behind us and honks the horn a little bit, like, hey, let's go. And you know who we become in that moment? Little old lady driving along, giving God the bird. <laughs> Some of you are horrified right now. You're like, I would never do that. That's so disrespectful and irreverent. I would never do that to God, ever. Okay, bear with me. <laughs> when the creator of the universe calls your name and invites you in, when you know who he made you to be and the direction he has for your life and you choose to walk out the door and head in your own direction and make excuses for why you're not doing it. You can call that whatever you want, but what you can't do is pretend it's not an equally offensive gesture. I've been reading the prophets this month, read Isaiah and Jeremiah, I'm halfway through Ezekiel, and if you've read them, you know that God has some incredibly powerful and frequently offensive words to describe how he feels when people understand his design and intentionally ignore it. But the thing is, we do that to God all the time, weekly, daily, we do that to God. You know Why? We only really do it because he asks us to do stuff we don't feel like doing. But God does that to us all the time. And he does it to us because he has something bigger and something better for us in these comfortable, simple little lives where we just exist in a space that our world would call successful, but we never live for anything more than our lives. And we never have any battles that are actually worth fighting so God created us to get in the game and to be difference makers. And you and I have the opportunity every single day of our lives to step into that or to walk 
away from that, but something I want us all to understand is like chasing the dreams our culture says are worth chasing means letting the dreams God has placed inside our souls shrivel up and die within us because we cannot chase both. One is comfortable, the other is a fight, but it's the fight you were born for. It's a battle God has handed you as a way of blessing you with purpose and meaning and the chance to make an impact. And so the question I want to ask this morning, the thing I want all of us to wrestle with is this, what will I choose when I come to the crossroads of pleasure and purpose? What do I want to do most with the few breaths I have on this planet? What matters more to me, my comfort or God's kingdom? Do I want a life that's all downhill or do I want a life that makes a difference? Because the truth is you can't have both. We're in the middle of this series, Ordinary Heroes, where we've been taking a look at some Bible characters who are a whole lot like us. Just normal, everyday people who somehow were used by God to do incredible things. Things And today we're going to look at the story of an orphaned, exiled girl who in today's terms we would probably say was, was trafficked, who found herself in a situation where she had to decide what path she was going to choose at the crossroads of pleasure and purpose. Her name's Esther. So if you have a, a Bible or a Bible handy, you can crack it open to the book of Esther. If you hit Nehemiah, keep going. If you hit Job, go back. This is just a really powerful, incredible story to read cover to cover. It'll take you less than 30 minutes. If you never have, I would suggest it. But in chapter one, verse one, we kind of get a little background to the whole story. This is what it says. This is what happened during the time of King Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from least to greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. So here's the situation. There's a king in the Persian Empire, which at this point is the largest empire the world has ever seen. It stretches from Ethiopia and Africa up through the Middle East to Turkey and to the borders of Greece and then all the way over to India and Pakistan. And this king's name is Xerxes, or depending on the translation you're reading, it might say Ahasuerus. Same guy, son of Darius, the Greeks called him Xerxes, and eventually they conquered everything, so that's why he's known to history as Xerxes. His Persian name was actually Kasayarsha, which got transliterated into Hebrew and then English, and we got Ahasuerus somehow. Anyways, really famous guy, pretty big and imposing figure in history. If you've ever seen the movie 300, or you're familiar with the story of King Leonidas leading 300 Spartans to the hot gates at Thermopylae to make their stand against a million-man Persian army, that was that guy's army, this Xerxes. Same dude, invaded Greece, big deal. And what's happening in Esther 1 is that apparently he is so ridiculously full of himself that he decides to throw himself a six-month party. And at the end of it, he's like still not partied out, man. And so he tacks on an extra week. And what we learn later is that he's having a party for all the dudes and his wife, Queen Vashti, is hosting kind of a separate party for the women that's a little bit more laid back. But Xerxes doesn't dial it back at all. He drinks a whole bunch of wine, and this is where things get sticky because this is a universal truth. Drunk people make bad choices, all right? 
Just as there's never been like, a, what was the turning point in your life? You know what, man, I got wasted and I figured out the key to saving my marriage. It just doesn't happen, okay? So Xerxes, he gets drunk. He's like, you know what I should do is show off my smoking hot wife. And he tells her to come over to his party wearing her crown. And most scholars believe that means only her crown. He's willing to humiliate her in order to exalt himself. And she says, no. And so now he's drunk and mad. And his buddies are like, hey, man, you should pass a law to kick her out of the whole kingdom because then maybe all the wives around here will do what we say more often. And Xerxes goes, ah, genius. And I know what you're thinking right now. I bet that worked out great for him. In fact, most of the married women in this room are probably going, you know what, if the Supreme Court said I had to prance around in whatever my husband wanted whenever he felt like it, I think I would love him so much more, right? Just one more time for good measure, drunk people make bad decisions. And so he kicks his wife out of the kingdom. And if you're wondering what this has to do with Esther, well, Xerxes suddenly found himself single, right? And as we take a look at Esther's story this morning, I want to take a look at like three different decision points. Three options we have as followers of Jesus, three categories of following God that are available to us. And the first one is this, I will follow you if. I think the very first thing a whole lot of us say to God is, I will follow you if. Check it out. At the end of chapter one, we learn that the king sobers up and he's like, oh man, I threw out my wife. Now I don't have a wife. And his nobles are like, that's fine, man. We're going to get you a new wife, a better wife. We're going to scour all the whole empire for beautiful women, and we'll bring them in, and you can pick one. And Xerxes thinks this is a great idea, so he decides to host the first ever season of The Bachelor. You guys thought that show was 15 years old. It's not. 2,500 years old, you learn new stuff, watch, or reading the Bible. And for what it's worth, just as an aside... I think the concept is no less gross today than it was 2,500 years ago when Xerxes scoured 127 provinces for hot young chicks. It's a bunch of codependent people overemphasizing physical features, throwing themselves at someone, hoping that person will be their savior, their Jesus, who isn't really Jesus. Hashtag Mike's thoughts, but don't let me ruin your enjoyment of the show. Anyways, at the beginning of chapter two, we get introduced to Esther. We learn she's a Jew, but when her land got conquered, she was exiled. She was carried off a half a world away across the desert, and at some point, she was orphaned. Her parents died, and her older cousin, Mordecai, took her in. And one day, she's out chilling, and one of the nobles who's scouring the land sees her and realizes that she's particularly good-looking and decides she's going to be chosen for the king's beauty pageant. And this really wasn't an option for her. It wasn't something she got to say no to. The most powerful man in the world sent out officials who said, you're coming. And so she gets trafficked in to the competition for Xerxes' smoking hot new wife. And she spends a year getting prepped for this, getting all these beauty treatments for this one night date to see if she can win the heart of Xerxes. And this is what we read in chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. 
So we set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So Esther wins. It's this incredible, improbable story. And verse 19 of chapter 2 continues, Esther and Xerxes lived happily ever after. It's so cool. It's amazing. It doesn't say that. The people who are actually looking at their Bibles are like, I don't think he got the words right on that. It's not what it says. But that's how we want it to end, right? That's how all our Disney movies end. Simba and Nala got together. Nemo got found. Dory also got found. You know, like, but this is real life, and real life doesn't work out that way. The thing is, though, in this exact moment, I bet that's how Esther wanted it to work out. Most of us hope that on our wedding day, that it'll all just be happily ever after. And the truth is, most of us hope that about our faith lives too, that we'll accept Jesus and then everything will just be easy after that. We just wish that us and God was like a happily ever after story. We're like, God, if you'll rescue me from this difficult situation, if you'll make my life comfortable, if you'll bless me, if you'll, you'll give me what I want and what I need, then I will follow you. Just sign me up for that. If, if I can know that I'll always get the stuff and the recognition and the relationships and, and all the good things that my heart desires, then God, I will follow you. It's so easy to try to follow Jesus with an if. If it's easy, if I always win, Jesus, if you serve me and never ask anything of me, then I'll follow you. And what happens is sometimes we subconsciously drift into that space and then we show up at church and we hear a message that leans on us pretty heavily to change and to move toward purpose and to live boldly and we just kind of shrug it off. We're like, ah, it can't be for me. It's for somebody else, not for me. God can't be asking me to do that because God exists for my glory, I think. Isn't that how it works? The problem of if is that when things break, when God stops existing for our glory, we stop following. The second way I want to look at that we sometimes try to follow God is this way I call, I'll follow you, but. And the way this one happens is that occasionally in life we hear things that are true but uncomfortable. When my daughter Emma was little, one time I looked down at her and I said, Emma, you're so smart. How'd you get to be so smart? She said, Mommy and Daddy. And I really liked that answer. I'm going to be real with you. So I pushed my luck a little. I said, and you're so pretty. How'd you get to be so pretty? Mommy. I said, nothing from me? No. So I spanked her. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. <laughs> like, that's so terrible. Like, I, you're looking at me. You've seen Jenny. She was just telling the truth. But sometimes in life, the truth is really uncomfortable. It shakes up our happiness a little bit. It gives us a hard vibe check. And this is what's going on with Esther. In chapter three, there's a twist to her story. She's gotten her uncle Mordecai a job at the temple. He's doing a, or a job at the palace. He's doing a pretty good job, but then something goes down. It says this, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadoth of the Agagite, elevating him, giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, okay? This was not because Mordecai was a jerk. It's because Mordecai was a Jew. 
And kneeling down before someone in the ancient Near Eastern world was a way of worshiping them. And Jews refused to kneel to anyone but God. So Mordecai isn't about to worship Haman. He's not even about to worship Xerxes as powerful as he is. But it really gets under Haman's skin that this one guy isn't kneeling while everyone else is kneeling. And his buddies come along and they're like, yeah, man, he's supposed to be kneeling. This isn't right. You should kill him. Which feels like a little bit of an overreaction, right? Turns out, though, they actually underestimated Haman's rage. He goes, no, I'm not just going to kill him. I'm going to kill all the Jews in the whole world. And then he pulls some strings politically. He does some favors, and he works it out so that King Xerxes actually signs a law that says there's a day where people can just massacre the Jews. And it's amazing because the more things change, the more they stay the same. 2,500 years later, backroom deals and personal favors still allow politicians to do horrible things to everyday people. And 2,500 years later, there are government officials sitting in that exact same city in Iran still plotting to kill all the Jews in the whole world. There's nothing new under the sun. But Mordecai gets wind that there's this genocidal edict that's going to wipe his people off the face of the planet. And so he gets a little bit worried. Actually, he freaks out. He just panics. He's like, this is so bad. What are we going to do? People don't even know. They're not even going to see it coming. Like this, my people are going to be slaughtered. And I don't know how in the world we could fix it except for Esther. This, this girl, this poor exiled orphan who's now the queen and I got her cell phone number and the wheels begin turning for Mordecai he's like oh man this whole time I've just kind of been going along thinking it's about her it's kind of for her comfort and for her glory it's just this beautiful rags to riches story for this sweet kid and no one in the world deserves it more but maybe just maybe there's something bigger going on here maybe she is where she is so that she can save countless lives What if God has been doing something at a level I didn't fully understand? And so he shoots her a text, or the ancient version, a messenger, and he says, hey, you got to go to the king, you got to tell him to stop this. And Esther's response in chapter 4, verse 12, is an incredibly powerful window into the human soul. Mordecai tells her, genocide is on the horizon you got to take action. And she says, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Esther goes, yo, Mordecai, Uncle Mort, how's it going, man? I'm so thankful for all the things that you did for me, and that is a real bummer to hear this news, but, like, I cannot be the one who goes. Someone else can be the one. Someone else probably will, right? But I can't do it because it'll cost me. It'll cost me too much. Like, Xerxes is a bad dude. He kills people. You know what happened to the last queen he didn't like? She's gone, and so just, like, I'm really sad about all the people who are going to die. I will pray for them, like, thoughts and prayers, but, um, I knew. Not me. God can't be asking me to do it. Like Esther takes stock and she realizes that if she steps boldly toward this invitation God has given her, it's going to cost her her many petties and her massages and a really comfortable lifestyle and it might even cost her her life. And she's thinking, I just have a lot going on right now. God couldn't possibly be inviting me to risk everything he just gave me. 
God couldn't possibly be inviting me to, to risk this relationship and the future of this relationship to be bold in this situation, could he? And make no mistake, right here, Esther is standing at the crossroads of pleasure and purpose, and her natural instinct is to choose pleasure. You know what? So's ours. Like, she is me right here. She's you. That, that's us. You guys, we live in a city with more than a third of a million people who don't know Jesus, and we are God's plan to reach them. We are plan A. There is no plan B. And we know it. But if we're dead honest with each other this morning, in this terrible, gross, hot, dry season, most of us spent more time this week thinking about our lawns than we financial, like now to be crazy, generous, and sacrificial. And I know you say this is what you want from me, and there's blessing, and there's beauty, and there's meaning, and if I just, I'm not going to do that. God, I'll follow you, but I'm not going to share my faith with other people. That could be uncomfortable. I just don't want to risk what you've given me. I don't want to risk the relationship. God, I'll follow you, but I just don't want to be uncomfortable. Like all of us have our butts. We're like meatloaf Christians, you guys. I would do anything for Jesus, but I won't do that, Right? But here's the deal. We need you. This church needs you. I need you. All of you. The people sitting around you in this room need you. This city needs you. We need you to be all in, to give your time and your effort and your finances and everything you've got toward the mission God has of helping lost people crash into his love we need you. And it's easy to, to follow with a but and say, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but. But we need you. And in the end, it isn't even about like what you have to anybody here to ever settle for anything less than what God says he made you for. Anything less than option number three, this third way of following that is, I will follow you no matter what. Come what may, no matter what. And that one's scary. It's scary for me because we know, I know it's going to lead me to places that are not simple and decisions that are not easy and something in the back of my mind screams, yeah, but I'm just not ready yet. Like someday I want to follow you like that, God. Someday I want to go all in. Someday I want to step toward purpose, but just like I got to do some stuff first and I got to get my heart prepared first. But you guys, I want you to know that following God all in, it's kind of like getting married or having a kid. You can't be ready for that. You're never going to be ready for that. There's no way of preparing for you for that. You just got to take a leap of faith. And we can take that leap. We can dive in head first without even knowing what the pool looks like because we know who God is, because he's proven himself faithful time and time and time again to generation after generation after generation. We can go all in. We have to go all in and we have to do it now because time is short and people are perishing. This is what Mordecai says after he gets Esther's response that she just like can't right now. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. He's like, I, I know you think you're safe and you're comfortable, but you're not and neither is everybody else. And then he says something that's profound. It's probably the most famous line from the book of Esther. He says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Because what if this is our time? 
What if you are right where you are for such a time as this? What if you are who you are for such a time as this? What if God's got you exactly where he wants you to make a difference through your life in such a time as this? And Esther heard it and she zoomed out from the myopia of her comfortable moment for a second. She's like, no, what really matters? Who is God and who did he make me to be? And then she did something absolutely incredible. She sent him back this message. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susan, fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast with you. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. She said, all right, I, I cannot waste this divine moment that's right in front of me. I cannot miss this chance at the crossroads of pleasure and purpose. I choose to believe that I was created for such a time as this. Even if it costs me my life, I am going in. And the rest of the story is so incredible that Hollywood couldn't even make a movie about it. No one would believe it was true. It's this exiled, orphaned, trafficked girl who was alone in the ancient world in this big old kingdom who took a stand and rerouted the course of world history. She talked to Xerxes and he listened to her and he issued a whole bunch of other edicts that allowed the Jews to defend themselves. And then he executed Haman for trying to execute them. Which is this crazy, incredible thing where Esther's boldness literally rerouted the future and rewrote the story. This isn't just recorded in the Bible. This is world history, you guys. She took a stand and God did something huge. And I think the question for you and me today is, are we willing to take that stand? At the crossroads of pleasure and purpose, what will we choose? Will we choose to believe that we are here for such a time as this? Like, what if there's a moment out there ahead of you? What if there's a divine moment just brimming with potential where God is waiting to meet you in a way that changes the story forever? Will you look for that moment? Will you seek out that space where the way that you follow God creates a better future for you and all of the people around you? Because I know so many people in this room, so many people in this church are doing it. You're all in. You're giving and you're inviting and you're serving. And thank you. Like from the bottom of my soul, thank you for that. Thank you for the way that you're stepping towards purpose in a world that always calls you back to pleasure. But for all of us, no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done so far, all of us need to know crossroads moments are coming. Plenty of them more of them than we could possibly imagine. That's the world that we're living in. I actually think that they're all around us every single day if we'll just keep our eyes peeled. And the only question is whether we'll make the decision Esther did or whether we won't. But if we will choose to believe that in his power, sometimes God is working on a level that we cannot understand until we look backwards, and that in his grace, God is able to use us despite the fact that we're painfully ordinary, that he's able to do great things in people's lives through our fears and our faults and our failures and our frailty. If we will believe that, then we'll end up in the same beautiful, terrifying space that Esther did. 
I mean, it was terrifying because she didn't see a way forward. But she did what she could and she let God fill in the blanks. She didn't have to know how God was going to move to know that God was going to move. And if we'll do that exact same thing, if we'll dive in, if we'll have big faith in a big God who has always proven himself faithful and say, I don't have to know how you're going to move to know that you're going to move. I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to let you fill in the blanks. Then I really do believe that for us, the best is yet to come. For this city, the best is yet to come. For all the people around us who live every day on the razor's edge between hope and despair, they will begin to breathe the oxygen of God's love as we point them toward the hope we have. Look, ordinary heroes like you and me can write a better future for the world if we expel our ifs and lose our buts and say, God, I will follow you no matter what. Will you just pray with me? Lord, give us the courage to live like Esther. Give us the courage to stand in bold relief against the backdrop of a world that always calls us towards pleasure and choose purpose instead. Would you present us this week, Lord, with crossroads moments, with opportunities to step toward the calling and the meaning and the purpose that you have for our lives? Would you shake up our comfort and use us, us ordinary, everyday, painfully normal people, to point the people around us toward your love. Lord, thank you for inviting us into that. Thank you for inviting us to be a part of what you're doing to set all things right and make all things new. Give us the courage to walk toward that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.